welcome back to the Relational Grace Podcast, where we feature the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son, and today I'm joined by my brother Deke. Yes, I'm Deke Harris, also Pastor Harris's son, and I'm happy to be here today to help kick off this new series with everyone. Well, it's great to have you here, brother. So back in 2003, Pastor Harris prepared a study titled, The Beast from the East. Now, Dad had taught these topics many, many times. These topics include Daniel, Revelations, Armageddon, and the Antichrist. However, in this series of messages, Dad will discuss these teachings through the lens of the time. His time being, as I mentioned earlier, 2003, when this was originally recorded. Indeed, it really was an historic time. See, back in 2003 in the Persian Gulf War, the Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein had been removed from power by the alliance. Pastor Harris is going to walk us through God's timeline and hypothesize about the meaning of these events alongside what we can learn from Revelations. We also have the luxury of looking back at these events through the lens of 2022. For example, today we know that Iran, which borders Iraq, has risen in power and is on the verge of having nuclear capabilities. The Persian Empire is really being reestablished. Now, I have to admit, part of me wasn't sure how relevant these specific messages would be. Our current day is now here in the year 2022, almost 20 years later. But as I began to listen, I realized these teachings were actually almost more interesting now, given what we know, than they were back in 2003. Brother, I agree. If you recall our conversation recently when I was in Europe and thinking about the world stage... I really was prompted to revisit Dad's teachings on Daniel and Revelations due to the events in Ukraine. It's fascinating to hear Dad teach from these two books and apply those prophecies to his day back in 2003. As I mentioned earlier, we can do the same in 2022 and see where we are in the landscape of war and peace. There are great lessons and depth of knowledge to be gained in these teachings that have direct impact on our present day. I really believe everyone listening will find these very interesting and impactful. Now, if I can switch gears to a bit more of a personal story. As most of the listeners of this podcast know, one of the things I love to do is share some stories about Dad and give a little bit more of a glimpse into our family and his ministry from our viewpoint. I can think back to probably 1994. I think I was still in high school. By then, it was clear at the time that I was pretty artistic and fairly handy as well. I remember Dad approaching me about helping him with some visual aids for upcoming teachings. See, the way it worked between Dad and I was this. When Dad asked if I would be willing to help with something, or even suggest that I help do something, there was only one reply I could come back with, and that was yes. Now, what was originally described as visual aids materialized into four, roughly five feet wide by about four feet tall, beasts each with a set of unique requirements including color scheme and elements like wings and horns and eyes and teeth and the list goes on, all the way to very specific quantities of each. I also created a seven-foot-tall drawing of a statue. You'll hear about this one mentioned from the book of Daniel, all requiring different metallic paints and details. But right when I thought the work was complete, Dad came back and asked, So how will I get these to stand up on the stage? Can you build stands for each of them? That shouldn't be that hard, right? Now, thinking back, this may have very well have been the beginning of my woodworking career. All to say, I got them all done. And never attended one of Dad's studies utilizing these creations. 
More than likely, I was just up in the youth room playing ping pong like any good pastor's kid should. Now, flash forward to today, I can say it was fun hearing about these teachings from Dad and finally learning about these beasts I'd created. It brought back a lot of memories from the endless drawing, cutting, painting, and building of all those visual aids from Revelations. And don't forget the multi-metallic statue from Daniel. That one was a doozy. There are a few things we thought you should know about this series ahead of time. You can expect it to be five episodes in length, but some of these stand alone pretty well, so one may not be contingent on you listening to another. However, the first two episodes will be a two-part teaching that Dad recorded, which is also called The Beast from the East, and it will have part one, which we will hear in this episode, and part two will be published in the next episode. So with that, we hope everyone enjoys this thought-provoking message in part one of The Beast from the East. As we all know, Saddam Hussein has been a problem for much of the international community ever since he first seized power in Iraq in 1979, a power that he just lost today, April 9th, 2003. Write it down. It's an important date in history. Until this morning, he had been in power longer than any other autocrat in the entire Middle East. He held on to that power not only because he was brutal. You see, his predecessors were all extremely brutal as well. He hung on to power because he was also politically astute. He chose to have no friends. He only had agents or enemies. He maintained the powers of state, just like his heroes Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin did. He maintained overlapping intelligence agencies that would spy on each other, that would spy on the army, and that would spy on neighboring countries. No corner of Iraq was outside his control for over 25 years. As one commentator has said, he, was, he has never wasted his time or efforts murdering those whom he hated, like Jews or communists. He only killed those he considered to be dangerous, even members of his own immediate family. And until 1990, he knew just when to go all out against an opponent. And more importantly, he knew exactly when to stop. He always stopped before he overreached himself. That was his genius. That is what held the world in awe of him. And then he began to read his own press. And beloved, whenever you do that, it always results in disaster. In 1990, believing that the third world majority, who were then controlling the United Nations General Assembly, would support and protect him, Saddam Hussein invaded Iraq, an area that he truly believed belonged to the Iraqis. Now, he knew the risk of this action, but he also believed that the UN would restrain any counteraction against him. If some nation, like the United States, tried to stop him, he promised that he would launch the mother of all wars, a ploy to intimidate a liberalized United States. But America was not intimidated. Six months later, as we all know, the mother of all wars was joined, but it proved to be the father of all defeats. You see, he had severely underestimated the will and determination of the Bush administration, and he had overestimated the clout of the United Nations. The only thing the United Nations did for him 
was intervene enough to keep him and his brutal regime from being toppled in 1991. And for the next 12 years, the UN would continue to prop up his totalitarian rule. But now Saddam is gone. His power has been broken. Once again, he miscalculated the will and determination of a Bush administration. What goes around comes around. But the sad truth is, without the interference of the United Nations, this tyrant would have gone years and years ago. You see, without the United Nations, he would have never survived even the events that took place in 1981 when he decided to launch an attack on Iran. He was totally a product of the United Nations system. Now, are you aware that the connection between Iraq and the United Nations goes far back into the mists of ancient biblical history. Did you know that? Well, it does. Most people are unaware of Iraq's special place in the Bible. Did you know that Iraq is mentioned more times in the Old and New Testament than any other nation on this earth except for Israel? And you know what? It's mainly mentioned in texts relating to end-time events, events which I believe are soon to happen. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Now, as we all saw, on March 20th, 2003, the armies, navies, and air forces of the United States and Great Britain unleashed a major ground and air attack against the regime of Saddam Hussein, and a new kind of war came into being. That night, the entire world watched in awe as thousands of aircraft and some 300,000 soldiers crossed into the nation of Iraq from Kuwait. Now, this incursion has proven to be the most high-tech foray in human history. We have seen ordinances strike targets with pinpoint accuracy. We have seen Patriot missiles uh, intercept incoming rockets. We have seen Tomahawk cruise missiles that were fired from the Red Sea follow the lay of the land for some 500 miles to find a, t a target on the Tigris River. We have seen bunker buster bombs penetrate deeply into the ground to collapse fortresses far beneath the Earth's surface. It's a new kind of war, beloved. But I believe it is only the harbinger of a war yet to come. A war to be fought on a worldwide basis. World War III, if you please. You see, in the book of Revelation, we are told of a vision that was seen by St. John the Divine. This vision is known as the judgment of the seven seals. Now, the scene occurs in heaven around the throne of God. The focus is a parchment that has been sealed in wax with seven seals. Now, this scroll is the title deed to the planet Earth. And when every seal is finally opened, the Earth will be returned to its rightful owner. Now, as John can see, this piece of, piece of parchment rests in the hand of the one who sits on heaven's throne. This is, of course, the hand of Almighty God. As John looks about this scene in heaven, he sees there something very odd. He sees a wounded lamb, one who is still bleeding, standing before God's throne. Now, I want you to look with me at the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Revelation in chapter 5, reading from verse 6. This is what John is seeing, chapter 5 and verse 6. 
And one of the elders, now in heaven there are four and twenty of these, twenty-four elders, representing the twelve tribes of Israel, the redeemed of the Old Testament era, and the twelve tribes of the apostles, the redeemed of the New Testament era. There are twenty-four of them. And one of the elders saith unto me, in verse 5, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth." Now, beloved, as you can see, those seven horns are on the head of the Lamb. And those seven horns have great significance. You see, in all apocalyptic writings, seven is the number of completion on the earthly plane. When there is seven of a thing, there is no more as far as this created order is concerned. It is completely and finally done. That is the end of it. While horns in apocalyptic literature represent power. He has seven horns. The power of this lamb is complete and proven. There is nothing else for this lamb to prove. And when the lamb is identified, it is, repre- it is identified as the horns being the seven spirits of God. In other words, the complete power of God's Holy Spirit as it worked through him on this earth. Remember what he said to his disciples. When I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. He will represent me on this earth. Now that work, as John sees this vision, that work of the Holy Spirit is now completed once and forever. It's done as far as the earth is concerned. Now the seven eyes that the Lamb has also have enormous significance. These seven eyes symbolize the complete knowledge and wisdom possessed by this Lamb. This Lamb knows everything there is to know and has all the wisdom that there is to be had in the world. So this Lamb that was slain takes up this scroll and the Lamb begins to open that scroll one seal at a time. One seal at a time. Now let me assure you this is significant. The breaking of the first seal is the act that will initiate the beginning of the end of this present age. Now as the Lamb breaks the first seal, one of the four living creatures who dwells around the throne of God cries out in a loud voice and says, Go! Now I know your King James Version says come. That's not what it says. He says, go. He is sending someone, something out. And the first of what will be four horses and riders gallops upon the world scene. Now the first rider is mounted on a white horse. He has a crown on his head, and in his hand he carries a bow. As soon as he disappears over the horizon, a second horse and second rider go forth. And this rider carries in his hand a mighty sword. And then as soon as he disappears over the horizon, a third rider is mounted on a black horse and carries a balance scale in his hand. And as soon as he disappears over the horizon, the fourth rider is mounted on a pale horse, and the rider on this horse is called in the book of Revelation, Death. Now traditionally, these four horsemen of the apocalypse are given these names, conquest, war, famine, and pestilence. 
Now, I don't have time to explain all of this to you tonight. Suffice it to say that the events initiated on March 20th did not mark the opening of the first seal. That is not what happened three weeks ago. Write that down. That's important. That is not what happened. You see, there's an event that has to occur on this earth before that first seal is opened. It is called the rapture of the church of Jesus Christ. God has to call up His church to meet Him in the air to be prepared for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Until that happens, the seals will not begin to be opened. The Lamb will not receive the seal until that event occurs. So, as far as I am concerned, the events of the past three weeks represent the prelude of the riding forth of these four end-time horsemen. This war is making that ride inevitable. That's what I'm saying to you. What we have seen happen in Iraq over the past three weeks makes the coming war a certainty. It is inescapable now. There is no going back. This is a prelude to what is to come. It is the first sign of the coming end of the age. Now, beloved, I have arrived at this conclusion from years of studying the prophets and the various apocalyptic portions of the Bible. So tonight, I want to begin at the beginning to show you how I arrived at this conclusion. So tonight, I want to begin by looking at the area of the world in which Operation Iraqi Freedom is now occurring. Now, this area is steeped in both historical and prophetic significance. This part of the world that we call today Iraq was once known as Mesopotamia. Meso between Potamia, the rivers. It was the land between the rivers. The land between the Tigris and the Euphrates River is the land we now call Iraq and was known in history as Mesopotamia. Now, those two rivers were two of the three great rivers of antiquity, the Tigris and the Euphrates. The third river was, of course, the Nile. Now, this area is also called something else. It's not only called Mesopotamia. It is also called by many scholars the cradle of civilization. Now, there is a reason why it has been given this name. It is here, beloved, that the human family first learned to read and write. That occurred in this land between the river, Mesopotamia. That is where man first learned to read and to write. It was here that human beings first learned to cipher and to keep account books. And it was here that people developed irrigation practices, which was the key to this whole thing. You see, the way that they were able to grow enough food... Do you understand that for millennia after millennia after millennia, one man could grow enough food to feed one family? That was it. One man could feed one family. Therefore, every family had to either be engaged in farming or in gathering. You had to either be a hunter or a farmer. But everyone only could provide for one family unit. Then came the agricultural revolution right here in the land we call Iraq today, the land between the rivers. They learned how to irrigate. And when they learned how to irrigate, they began to be able to produce more food than one family could eat. And so what that did is it set free other people to become artisans. You see, if you didn't have to be out all day hunting food, if somebody else was doing food for you, 
then you could be doing something else. And so people learned to be furniture makers and carpenters. People learned how to build houses. People learned how to uh, uh, bake bread for others. I mean, all of a sudden, you had artisans, and that gave rise to life in congregations of people. It gave rise to what we call city life or village life probably would be much more appropriate here. And as I said earlier, this area between the two great river systems not only played a vital role in secular history, but in biblical history as well. For one thing, biblical history began here. Did you know that? This is where your Bible began, right here in this land between the rivers. That's where the Bible opens. Now, for one thing, the Garden of Eden itself is believed to have been located in this area. As a matter of fact, Time Magazine, hardly a supporter of the Bible, would you say, carried a magnificent article about 10 years ago, perhaps some of you read it, postulating that the Garden of Eden actually lies today beneath the headwaters of the Persian Gulf in this area. And they came to this conclusion by satellite photography. The scripture talks about four rivers that flowed through the Garden of Eden. And those rivers today are believed to be seen in dry wadis that at one day when the earth's climate was different flowed through this very area that is now under the waters, the headwaters of the Persian Gulf. Now, I didn't make that up. I don't want you to think I invented it. I didn't. I have no idea if it's true or not. I'm quoting Time magazine. That is not the Bible. That is Time, and they're two different things, believe me. Now... <laughs> In addition, one of the central figures of the Bible, Abraham ben Terach, the father of the, of the Hebrew people, was born and raised in the city of Ur of the Chaldees. Now, if you look at this area right here, this is Baghdad. We've been seeing a lot of, uh, of uh, footage of Baghdad. Baghdad is located here. Ur of the Chaldees is located 100 miles south of modern Baghdad, today in the delta area of the uh, Euphrates River. That is where Abraham was born and raised. In fact, this area we now call Iraq was the center of the biblical world from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12. Everything in the first 12 chapters of the Bible took place in the land between the rivers in Mesopotamia. That was the home of our patriarchs. Now think about this. Adam and Eve lived here. Cain, Abel, and Seth were born there. Enoch walked with God there. Noah built his ark there. And Abraham was born there. All of that happened in this area. But the most important city to ever exist in Mesopotamia, in the land between the rivers, was a city whose name is Babylon. This is the city of that region. It is the central city of the biblical era and of every era to follow until 333 B.C. All of that involved this city of Babylon. As I said, it was located some 50 miles south of the modern city of Baghdad. So if you're looking at this now, you look straight down here and here's where you find the city of Babylon. The ruins of this city can still be found. The walls are still 
uh, uh, still stand. The gates of the city, you can still walk through them. It is a marvelous place to be. I've never been there. It's one of those places where I'd like to go. If things get better, I probably will. But you know, it's just one of those things. Now let me tell you about Babylon. Babylon was founded in 2250 B.C., planted on the banks of the Tigris River by Nimrod the Great. Now, this man, Nimrod, is a story unto himself. You see, he was an arch-fiend. Nimrod was the first truly demon-possessed man in the history of the world. He was satanic in all of his ways. He was an arch-fiend. And I believe that Saddam Hussein was possessed of the same spirit, the spirit of Nimrod. Now, let me offer you his background. In the book of Genesis, would you turn there with me, the first book of the Bible, and chapter 10, we read about this man. Chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. Here we have the list of nations. And this is what we read in Genesis 10, verse 8. And Cush begot Nimrod... He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now, that word Babel needs to be circled in your Bible because that is short for Babylon. Babel and Babylon are the same reality. There is a reason why it is given the name Babel early. And it has to do with something we'll see in a moment. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Achad and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. So that is what the background. And then in verses 8 through um, 8 through 12, or 11 and 12, out of that land went forth Asher and builded Nineveh and the city Rehoboth and Calah, and resin between Nineveh and Calah, the same is a great city. Now, I will go into the actual history of this man Nimrod later tonight. For now, just let me say that the people who established Babylon, like its founder, was known for being fierce warriors. They were aggressive to the max. And under the leadership of Nimrod, Babylon soon gained preeminence over all the other settlements in that area, causing Babylon to become the world's first imperial power. Pretty soon, the power of this one city-state spread out across most of the known world of that day. All the way from the Persian Gulf to the River Nile, the Babylonian Empire held sway over the world. It was a mighty thing to behold. There, the unrestrained power of Babylon caused Babylonian culture to become so perverse and depraved that even today it epitomizes the very essence of evil. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 4, Babylon is called the furious oppressor of nations. And so it was for thousands of years. Now, as I study the Word of God, it becomes clear and clear to me that the overarching goal of the Babylonians from the very beginning, especially the overarching goal of its founder, was to create a godless world order. Now, just listen to this. Genesis 11, 1 through 4. Read along with me if you would. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Now, isn't that the same thing? One language and one speech? No, what this means is they spoke the same language and they had the same mindset. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, say the east, 
that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Come, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, according to these verses, several hundred years after the great flood had destroyed the pre-Diluvian world, Nimrod attempted to create a kind of united nations with 70 nations that descended from the loins of Noah, joining themselves together as one, coming into unity. Now, that fact is established in the role of nations found in Genesis 10, 2 through 32. Now, the goal, beloved, of this ancient United Nations alliance was to enforce five major objectives on the world of that day. Five major objectives. And here are those objectives. Objective one, to establish a universal cultural consensus, to form a worldwide community of nations. Now, that's what it means when it says the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Now, by speaking the same language, these nations were all tied into the same cultural milieu. It caused them all to be of one mind and to share a common philosophical outlook, if you please, a common worldview. They all saw the world the way Nimrod saw the world. And beloved, let me tell you, that's dangerous. Now, we could say that at this point in history, Babel or Babylon was attempting to institute an international entity to preserve order as Nimrod understood order. Do you understand that tyrants understand order differently than democracies understand order? If you express your opinion in a dictatorship, that is disorder. If you don't, in a democracy, that is disorder. Your mind's disordered. We anticipate that people will express themselves. Nimrod was establishing government based upon his understanding of order, and I'll guarantee you it's the same understanding that Saddam Hussein has operated under since 1979. Objective two. This is important. To impose secularization on participating nations. Now, according to Genesis 11:2, the events of Genesis 11 occurred while the sponsoring 70 nations were journeying east. Did you notice that? I mean, it's very specific here. It says, and it came to pass that as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. These words, journeying east, are crucial. You see, this is where we must really know the Word of God, if we're to have a full understanding of the meaning of these words. You see, what this is, what these words are, it's what I call mystery speak. The Bible is full of mysterious language, and it's full of that language so that you will need a teacher that keeps me employed. <laughs> I'm glad for mystery speak. Now, throughout the Bible, people who choose to migrate in an Easter eastwardly direction, are always associated with rebellion against the will and purpose of God. Always. Don't ever forget that. Every time a group of people migrates toward the east, this is a people in rebellion. 
Now, the Hebrew word translated into English as journeyed is the Hebrew verb nasa. N-A-S-A, nasa. Now, what it means literally is to pull out of, to pull out of, like to pull out of an alliance, or it means to abandon. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Adam and Eve abandoned the garden toward the east. Okay? After Cain killed Abel and abandoned his home, in what direction did he go? Genesis 4 and 16. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Cain kills his brother. What direction does he go? He goes to the east. When Lot abandoned Abraham to seek his own future in the valley of Sodom, what direction did he go? Genesis 13 and 11. Here's what it says. Genesis 13 and 11. And Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated the one from the other. So you see, in a biblical sense, moving toward the east is symbolic for abandoning righteousness. Those who go toward the east are abandoning God. Now, there is a reason for this that I'm going to get to in just a moment. And all the descendants of Noah, we're told, after the flood, moved east, and Babel or Babylon was the place where those nations chose to congregate. And why not? They were in absolute and total rebellion against God's standards of morality and ethics. Objective three, to secure a base of power for the emerging nations apart from God. In other words, the desire to create a humanistic world order. Now, the book of Genesis says this in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4. Genesis 11 and verse 4. And they said, Come, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven, and let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, the most important words in this verse are to build a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Now, don't be deceived by this. Don't be deceived by this. These people were not stupid. They knew they could not possibly build an architectural structure that would be high enough to pierce the earth's atmosphere and to intrude into the heavenly realm. You see, here's what the Tower of Babel was. Here's what it was. It was a ziggurat. Now, what on earth is a ziggurat? It's simply a man-made artificial mountain or high place. Its top was seen as a sanctuary where men could encounter and then internalize the power of the divine. See, you went to the top of the ziggurat so that you could encounter God there and appropriate His power. Now, let me show you something interesting. It's found in the book of Ezekiel. God allowed me to see this a number of years ago, and it just kind of bowled me over. Ezekiel, and we're going to go back there in a night or two to Ezekiel. But in Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 13 and 14, we read these words. It says, Thou hast been in Eden. Now, I don't want to talk about who this is. Well, I'll tell you, it's Satan. But he says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Okay, now, now what's he talking about here? He's talking about the garden of Eden, isn't he? I mean, I'm not making this up. You're seeing it right here. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, 
The gold, the workmanship of thy timbrels and of thy flutes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. So we're talking here about a created being. He says, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Now, at the heart then, what this is saying, at the heart of the original Garden of Eden was a mountain sanctuary, a place where beings could meet with God, which is what a sanctuary is, a place of safety and divine human interaction. Now, it must have been here then that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening. It must have been on this mountain in the midst of the Garden of Eden. Eden was the ultimate sanctuary. It was from here that they were evicted once they had fallen into sin. Then suddenly after the fall, Adam and Eve and their offspring were denied access to that sanctuary. God, however, did have a prescribed means for gaining access. Now, how did God say? God said, you can commune with me again, but here's how it has to be. You have to find an innocent substitute that will stand between you and me. I cannot abide your sinfulness. You must have a substitutionary sacrifice. You recall... That was the requirements. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But human beings were not satisfied with the provision offered by God. you remember the story? Cain, he takes the first fruits of his harvest. He's very excited. This is what he has produced with the sweat of his brow. He's toiled and he's worked and he's turned that ground and he's done everything that a man could possibly be expected to do. He gathers up the fruit of his labor... Now, are you listening? Every word I say is important. He gathers up the fruit of his labor and he brings it to God. And God looks at it and says, that won't do, Cain. He's astounded. He said, God, this is the best I've got. I'm giving you the best. And God says, I don't want what you've done. You see, that is the seedbed of the first act of self-righteousness that was ever performed. God, I want to please you by what I do. Abel came. He hadn't worked a lick. Just picked up a lamb, brought it over, cut its throat, and burned its carcass. And God said, that's it, boy. I love you. Cain is infuriated. See, he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand that it is not what we do that makes us righteous before God. It is what God has done. But man doesn't want that. We want to please God by what we do. We want to do something. People tell me all the time, Pastor, I can't stand your message of grace because it doesn't allow me to do anything. Well, I'm going to tell you what. Don't dislike me. You know, because you're going to have to stand before God someday and He's going to tell you about your works. He says, hey, you know what that is? That's wood, that's hay, that's stubble. God said, that's not acceptable. And you remember Cain's response. He got angry and killed his brother Abel. So in time, Nimrod, who possessed the spirit of Cain, are you listening to pastor? Nimrod, who possessed the spirit of Cain, decided to storm the gates of God's habitation by building a great ziggurat. Now, this word ziggurat in the original Aramaic language means a stairway to heaven. Now, if we were Greeks, we would say that by building this tower, they were attempting to steal the holy fire or the holy flame. 
But what they were really doing was this. They were trying to secure the blessings of God and even the power of God by their own strength. They were going to work their way to God one level at a time, no matter how long it took. In fact, the entire Babel experience was no more than a humanistic power play. That was objective three. Objective four was to establish autonomy from God and to establish their own self-determination. Now, notice the text indicated that, that they wanted to make a name for themselves. Now, beloved, this was important in the biblical era. Names were given to define a person's character. Now, if someone's character was significantly changed, that person's name was also changed. We see it all the time. If a person was converted, and we saw a number in the Bible of those conversion experiences. For example, we have Abram, whose name was changed by God to Abraham. Remember? Then we have what? We have Sarai, his wife. Her name was, turned, was changed to Sarah. Then we have Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And then we have, for example, I could give you a dozen, but two more from the Scripture here. Simon, whose name was changed to Peter. And we have Saul, whose name was changed to Paul. Now, in each of these cases, either a parent or God Himself gave this changed person a new name. They didn't rename themselves. Now, here's my point. The leaders of this ancient United Nations, this 70-nation alliance that had gathered at Babel, tried to assume the divine prerogative and make a name for themselves. There is no room here for God, they are saying. We do not want God's interference. We want to make a name for ourselves. This was no more or no less than an attempt on the part of the various nations to live independently of God. It was an act of prideful, humanistic rebellion. That's objective four. Objective five to centralize control over every aspect of the human social structure. In Genesis 4, uh, 11, 4, we're told why the nations gathered. See, they came together in Babel for a reason. There was a reason they came. And the reason they came together was something they feared. They gathered together out of a sense of fear, and what they feared was this. They feared being scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Now, this was pure rebellion because scattering is what God had commanded them to do after the flood. Do you remember Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 and 2? It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon the fish of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. And so he's saying here, God is saying to them, I don't want you gathering in one place. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to populate the planet. So you see the objective of Nimrod, whose name incidentally, whose name incidentally means revolt. Now, it, he's kind of misnamed. If I would have named him, I would have been called him Nimrodding or Revolting because uh, 
You know, he, he, he was at least that. So the objective of Nimrod, whose name means revolt, and of the 70 nations gathered in Babel was to subvert God's authority both religiously and politically. Their plan was to substitute an alternative, humanistic, centralized authority, their own, for the government of God. Now, in addition to this one-world political objective, Nimrod also tried to create a one-world religious objective. You remember in Genesis 10, 9, we read a moment ago, we were told that Nimrod, did you get that, was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And then it is repeated a second time that he was a mighty hunter. That, that happens twice. Now, understand this. It's not talking here. The text is not talking about Nimrod's ability to bring down game. You see, he was not a mighty hunter of animals. What this actually means in the Hebrew is he was a mighty hunter for the souls of men and women. Not to bring them into the kingdom of God, but to lead them eastward away from God. This man was an evangelist anti-God. He was a mighty hunter for the souls of men and women. His purpose was to lead as many people away from God as he possibly could. That was his game. He hunted people. And as we have seen, when they joined him, he led them toward the east. Now, what happens in the east? The sun comes up in the east. In other words, Nimrod was a sun worshiper. He was the worshiper, we know this from history, he was the worshiper of celestial entities. He lived by the movement of the sun, the moon, and the stars. That's how he ordered his life. In other words, he was a practitioner of the pseudo-religion of astrology. He did horoscopes. Let me say it this way. He belonged to the new age, to the occult. Nimrod especially worshipped the sun. And that was one reason he built the ziggurat of Babylon, to be closer to the celestial bodies, to see them more clearly. Now, Nimrod had a queen. He was the king of Babel. Babylon, and he had a queen, and the name of the queen was Semiramis. Semiramis, just like it sounds, S-E-M-I, Ramus, R-A-M-U-S. And both Nimrod and Semiramis believed that the sun was the giver of life. They worshipped that sun. They were always facing the east. The sun was the way they calculated things, because for them, the sun came up in the morning, And it crossed across the skies, just like human life passing away. And then it goes, and darkness comes, signifying death. But then it comes up on the next day and continues its cycle over and over and over again. But one day, Nimrod, like all men, powerful and unpowerful, died. And his body was said to have ascended from the earth. Suddenly it was just caught up. The sun caught it up. And Nimrod was taken into the sun itself. And he was there for a while when suddenly out of the sun came forth a sunbeam. You're going to find this hard to believe. A sunbeam was sent out infused with the seminal fluid of Nimrod and it impregnated the womb of Semiramis. Now incidentally, Semiramis, are you ready for this? You're not going to like it. Are you ready for this? Semiramis was a virgin. The sunbeam came 
and impregnated her womb. And soon thereafter, she gave birth to a virgin-born son to whom she gave the name Tammuz. Now, Tammuz was said to carry about in him the spirit of his father. But one day, Tammuz, like his father, was out hunting, and he ran into a vicious boar, and the boar caught him and killed him. His mother, Semiramis, was devastated. Are you ready for this? You're not going to like this. Semiramis was was devastated, and so for 40 days, she wept. And at the end of 40 days, Tammuz was resurrected from the dead. Are you shocked? This, beloved, was the counterfeit world religion, counterfeit Christianity. You see, the enemy has always been after the church of Jesus Christ. Apparently, there in heaven's chambers and around the throne of God, when, when Lucifer was the covering cherub, he had heard the divine plan over and over again. So what does he do? He tries to imitate it step by step by step by step. A counterfeit Christianity that can become the world's great religion. They tried to pawn it off. Now, that counterfeit religion was intended to match the counterfeit world government Nimrod also tried to create. Well, God despised this demonic fraud because He knew that one day He would install a one-world religion and a one-world government Himself. You see, God is not going to let... Let me just lay something down for you. There will never be a one-world religion. There will never be a one-world government. Get that down. God has one coming, and He's not going to let one come to precede it. It is not going to happen. Every time human beings have ever tried this, it has failed. It failed in the days of Nimrod. It's failing now. You can't have it. Because, you see, the government that's going to come will be headed by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the religion will consist of an intimate personal relationship with that Son. Of course, Satan... We know by the book of Revelation, he's going to make one last try to institute a world religion and a world government. He's going to raise up a man in whom his spirit dwells, just exactly as it dwelled in Nimrod. And this man will seek to establish a one-world government and a one-world religion. And this man will be called the Antichrist. And he's going to come closer than anyone has ever come before. Incidentally, if you think this is strange... I was watching TV the other night when our boys were coming in to Baghdad. And they were standing on a corner. They were shooting pictures. And all of a sudden, up on the sign above the street, there was an arrow. It says, Tammuz Boulevard. Oh, that's not bad. In East Jerusalem, there's a hotel called the Semiramis. I could tell you why this is, but you wouldn't believe me, so I'm not going to tell you. Well, as ingenious as Nimrod's plan may have been, the great experiment at Babylon did not work. It failed miserably. It failed just as all human attempts to establish a one-world government have always failed. Listen to this. Genesis chapter 11, verses 5 through 9. 
11, 5 through 9. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people are one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be withheld from them which they have imagined to do. Come, let us go down there and confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there upon the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from there did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Now, as you can see, the alliance was broken. The universalist creed was confused. The tower of works righteousness was deserted. And a new world order was thrown into disarray for a time. Now, I've called for something on the screen. The great British essayist G.K. Chesterton once, once issued the following warning. Read this with me. Beware of men and movements that speak the language of Babel, regardless of whether they are communists or fascists, universalists or deists, socialists or capitalists, alchemists or templars, liberals or conservatives. Beware of their new world order. Beware of their peace in our time. Beware of their new age. Beware of their fraternal harmony. It is merely part and parcel of that same Tower of Babel impulse which God crushed so long ago. It is merely a new sprig from the primordial root of humanism. Man seizing his own destiny and making a name for himself in the annals of history. Christians, those are the truest words I've ever read in my life. All of our human mechanizations will not save us. They will not work. Of course, in spite of this warning, the language of Babel continues to be the common currency of the world diplomatic efforts. It's never ceased to be spoken. Alexander the Great spoke it. He wanted a one-world government. Augustus Caesar spoke it. The Muslim horde spoke it. Napoleon spoke it. Hitler spoke it. Stalin spoke it. And more than ever, the UN speaks it. Now, I know what all of you who are new here tonight are thinking, boy, this guy is a real UN basher. Well, let me answer that by saying, yes, I am. <laughs> in fact, virtually all of the most influential voices in the international community are using the same language and the same words today. They're crying out for the principles of Babel. They call for hegemony, for secularism, for power, for autonomy, and for centralization. In our time, the UN has steadfastly lobbied for the principles of Babel, for Babylon. You and I both know this. It's the most secularized entity that has ever existed on the face of the earth. You see, the world has never been able to free itself from the language of Babel. In addition, it has never been able to totally free itself from Babel's ambition and power either. The tower may have failed. The first attempt to found a UN may have failed, but Babylon is not finished. So let's go back. I've just got a moment. Let's go back to the history of Babylon, beginning after the scattering of the nations. Babylon was not through yet. On the plains of Shinar, in the land of Babylon, the place we now call Iraq, a mighty empire began to arise in the late 17th century B.C. As a matter of fact, we're going to show this map. In 605 B.C., it had subdued much of the known world. There is the Babylonian Empire. Look at it, stretching from the Persian Gulf through the kingdoms, taking up most of Iran, Iraq, Syria, Israel, uh, down into Jordan, down into the Hejaz, into Egypt. All of that 
controlled by the Babylonian Empire, beloved. And in 605 B.C., it had subdued much of the known world. It fought a battle. Up to that time, Egypt had been the major power in the world. It had been the dominating power. But at a place called Carchemish, up in the land of Syria, there was a battle fought between Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and between the pharaohs uh, of, uh, of Egypt. And in that collision between the two of them, Babylon crushed, utterly crushed, the armies of Egypt and took over most of the world, including the land called Judea. You might recall how when they came in, to be sure they could maintain control, they took away some of the finest people in the land at that time, including three boys, or four boys, named Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and carried them off into Babylonian captivity, along with the sons of the king. And they placed a surrogate king in to represent Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the Jews couldn't stand this. They revolted in 597. He came back. He crushed the city one more time. The Jews couldn't stand it again, and so they rose up against him. And in 587 B.C., under the leadership of its greatest king, Nebuchadnezzar the Great, who also possessed the spirit of Nimrod, the armies of Babylon marched on Jerusalem and destroyed the city of God. They burned and leveled the temple of Solomon and carried away into captivity the Jewish aristocracy, the Jewish intellectuals, and Babylon became the head of the nations. But you know what? All things change, and Babylon eventually changed too. The city was captured by the army of Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians. Media of Persia became the successor to Babylon in the world. And with the arrival of Alexander the Great, 150 years or so later, this entire area of the world began a slow descent into obscurity. It would eventually become a part of the planet's third world backwater nations. Beginning in 15... 17, it was even absorbed into the Ottoman Empire. And then came World War I when the Ottoman Empire was defeated and Arabia was divided into the Arab nations of Jordan, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. The last nation founded being Iraq. It was established in 1932 as a British protectorate and a constitutional monarchy. And thus, the ancient kingdom of Babylon was reestablished, given the name of Iraq. So now... When you read about Babylon in your Bible, remember this. If it is prophetic, it is talking about Iraq. If you want to get ready for what I'm going to do next Wednesday night, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 50 and 51 describes the events of the last three weeks in such graphic detail that you can't even miss that this is what he's talking about. And in 50 and 51... After that prophecy, we're going to graduate to the book of Revelation and we're going to see what Revelation says is going to happen after the events that we have just seen. This war is fairly well over. The one to come will make this look like a drop in the bucket. See you next time. God bless you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Ariel Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at arielministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Ariel Ministries in Thoraka, Kenya with Each One Feed One, 
We'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Aerial Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit aerialministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Tharaka mission, you can visit aerialministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future.